Welcome to Malik to the Stars, everybody. This is our part one of a young Terrence Malik, where we take where we take up the uh, films from his uh, early career. Badlands and Days of Heaven. What are you laughing at? That was like a Michael Caine accent. <laughs> it's really good. We're gonna take off the Badlands and the Days of Heaven. That was not a Michael Caine accent. That was a Michael Keaton accent. Um, my two faves. You still gotta watch the Batman's. I know. I love Michael Keaton. You don't even know about the Batman's though. Um, mm. Of course, this is the podcast that looks to the stars abroad in Hollywood and above in the night sky. Abroad and seeped in Hollywood, Terrence Malick really is. He doesn't make independent features they're always published pretty wide uh badlands being badlands is not an independent feature it's not an indie film uh it's published by warner brothers and they picked it up and everything now definitely set the template for a lot of um auteur cinema from the 70s and on which we'll discuss uh but this episode as rambly as this intro is you will not be finding it necessarily in this episode we're trying out a lot of different new things we have new mics we're going to be scripting that we have scripted the episode a lot more yeah we've already recorded reduce it spoiler the rambles. alert so reduce the rambles um map to the stars 2024 vote for us um anyway no so um yeah that's malik to the stars part one do we have anything else we really want to discuss oh and we have started to uh we have like almost a works cited that we're uh that we're including in the show description what are you looking at the time for? I wasn't. There's no <laughs> clock on there, you silly butt. There's not a single clock on the screen <laughs> no, that I can look at. No, but you keep looking at the screen. Look at me. Look in the eyes. Look, for everyone at home, Mishy, I'm Mishy. You're Jeremy. I sure am. Um, yeah, I really blew past all the same usual introductions, but I don't really care. We're excited, baby. We're excited and works excited. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yes, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Get, yeah. into, get the claws in there. Lots um, of new things. Also, a cool thing. I know we're on a monthly schedule, but because we're doing Malik part one and two, you will get part two in two weeks. Yes. Yeah. So a bit of a quick turnaround. Uh, we're uh, we're against the the crunch on this one, really under the under the bullet. What's the expression? Under the... Under the gun? Yo. We're definitely under the gun on this one in terms of the timeline and the turnaround, but... It should be coming out exactly when it was slated. But diamonds are made under pressure, baby. <laughs> diamonds are what? Made under pressure. Disappointing diamonds are the rarest of them all? <laughs> all right. Hopefully this gem of an episode isn't a disappointing diamond for everyone. Uh, we're going to pass it off to ourselves. Musical intro. Um, and guess what? Because we didn't do it in the outro, lovely artwork from Sarah Helm and the beautiful music. Or should that be switched? But the beautiful music from Jacob Anstey, of course. Uh Welcome to a whole new map to the stars. Malik to the stars, everybody. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, no more Michael Caine. A lot of Richard Gere. A lot of Richard Gere. Okay, here we go. Terrence Malik was born on November 30th, 1943 in Ottawa, Illinois, though some strange sources tell us it was Waco, Texas. We definitely don't think that's true, although he was raised in Texas and Oklahoma and I think resides in Texas now. His second film, Days of Heaven, which we'll discuss in this episode, actually has the central surrogate family unit relocating from Illinois to Texas within the first 10 minutes. So maybe kind of relevant. Before working in film, Malik was deep into academia, graduating in 1965 from Harvard University with a BA in philosophy and continuing on to a master's program 
As a Rhodes Scholar at Magdalen College of the University of Oxford in England, this sentence is still going on, uh, <laughs> though he would inevitably drop out to then move back to the States. From there, Malik briefly worked as a freelance writer, a philosophy professor at MIT, and even translated a Martin Heidegger essay, The Essence of Reasons, for a text published in 1969. Why are we bringing this up? If you've seen any Malik, you'll know philosophy is key to his filmmaking, specifically phenomenology, the study of experience and consciousness, and existentialism. So with his past, it makes sense that much of Malik's work is seen as, and very much is, scholarly and heady. His cerebral storytelling can definitely turn some people off, but for others, it only makes his films that much more worthwhile or mythic as we try to puzzle out every shot. Stepping back again, when he wasn't translating German philosophy, Malik was enrolled in a brand new program at the time in 1969, the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies, where he received a Master of Fine Arts in 1971. So two years after graduating from film school, he literally drops one of the best films of all time with Badlands. Beginning in the new Hollywood era, though straying quite far from the likes of the Brat Pack, Malik kicked off his cinematic career in 1973, as we just said, at 30 years old, with his aforementioned debut, Badlands, featuring the untouchable Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. As of 2019's A Hidden Life, he's directed a total of 10 features, with an 11th, The Way of the Wind, slated for some time in the near future. But knowing Malik, it could be pushed indefinitely. Of those 10, the films we'll be discussing on this episode are from his early career, Badlands from 1973, as we were going to say a million times over again, and Days of Heaven from 1978. Very quick sidebar, since we always love to bring up a director's accolades. Malik's received three Academy Award nominations, two for Best Director for The Thin Red Line and The Tree of Life, and one for Best Adapted Screenplay also for The Thin Red Line. The Tree of Life also received the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And as we were briefly talking, and this is off script for once, uh, we, you were asking if he actually like goes to any of the red carpet film premieres or his own screenings. And I remember reading an article for the 2011 can that he didn't go to the screening. I don't think he accepted the Palme d'Or. That could be false. I'm, you know, I'm, maybe I'm misremembering it. But he was seen at a bunch of other screenings and at restaurants with friends. And so, you think if legend. he was there to accept his own reward, a reward, award. <laughs> no, which is exactly it. He's accepting his own reward, which is his life and he's living it and he's not going to be a part of the Hollywood but system. I love you it. You think there'd be a picture or two and there is not. No, because he goes, no. <laughs> he has like a secure, he has a bunch of bodyguards like the president. He's the president of pretension in film Hollywood. Truly. Hollywood. <laughs> um, all right. Do you want to move to the astrology side? So let's talk about Malik's big three, his sun, his moon, and his rising sign. Diving into Malik's chart, he was born under the sign of Sagittarius, November 30th, one we've seen a lot on the podcast, and that is the sign of the archer. Sagittarius is a mutable male fire sign ruled by Jupiter, and Jupiter is the planet of optimism and expansion. Keywords here for Sagittarius are adventurous, spontaneous, open-minded, philosophical, inspiring, and truthful. Jupiter is also the greater benefic in ancient or Hellenistic astrology, so it's the planet that, taking into account whether Terence Malick was born during the day or at night, which we do not know, uh, has the ability to do the most good. Sidebar, what is benefic? Yeah, so in ancient astrology, um, there's the idea that two planets are benefics, uh, Jupiter and Venus, and two are malefics, Mars and Saturn. The benefics essentially have the power to do the most good, which mm -hmm. I just said. So they're the most 
positively influencing oh, that's nice. planets. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like it's missing a word, uh, a letter, but. In benefic? Yeah. I'll Absolutely. leave it for now. <laughs> okay, moving on to the moon. Malik's moon is in the sign of Capricorn. Capricorn is a cardinal female earth sign ruled by Saturn. And Saturn is the planet of structure, institutions, and rules. Capricorn is traditional, well-behaved, accomplished, responsible, and exists within the box. This is actually an unfortunate placement for the moon as Capricorn is the moon's sign of detriment. Since the moon rules cancer, Capricorn is the sign directly opposite of cancer in the zodiac wheel, so it's negatively placed due to the opposing qualities of the signs and creates some disharmony between cancer and Capricorn. Interestingly, Saturn is the greater malefic, having the ability to do the most harm in a person's chart. No birth time listed anywhere, but no surprises there as Malik's historically, as we've said, one of the most elusive filmmakers in Hollywood. The prince of pretension? The president. <laughs> the president. <laughs> Thus, Malik's ascendant is unknown to us, but the planets seem to have stayed in their signs throughout November 30th, so we don't have to deal with any uncertain placements. Beyond that, male is the dominant duplicity, a big theme we've seen lately. Air is the and dominant. a great uh, Keaton movie. And a great Keaton movie. Not or is familiar. It set- duplicity? We'll look it up after. We'll look it up. We'll put in the intro. <laughs> Air, the is, outro. <laughs> Air is the dominant triplicity with fire coming in second and mutable is the dominant quadruplicity. I've actually noticed. That's the sequel. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus. I've actually noticed a lot of similarities with Jeff Nichols chart. So if you want to point a comparison, go back and listen to his episode. Yes. Also, Malik only has one planet in an earth sign, that being his Capricornian moon and no planets in a water sign. Malik's work is known for bold, expansive, philosophical ideas paired with fragmented, poetic inner monologues and beautiful, picturesque landscapes. Regarding that philosophical grandeur, I think we'll focus a good amount of attention on the sign of Sagittarius and Jupiter's placement. Both Malik's sun and Mercury are in Sagittarius, and Malik's sun and Jupiter are in mutual reception, meaning that they are in each other's domiciles or happy places. Sun in Sagittarius and Jupiter in Leo. So the sun's placement speaks a lot to someone's purpose or motivation in this world. With sun in Sagittarius, we might say that long distance travel, cough, (laughs) and uh, seeking some sort of higher truth plays a big role in Malik's life, which he chooses to explore through his art. Mercury in Sagittarius describes exactly how he communicates that with his audiences and through his films. As for that beautiful imagery, we'll also pay close attention to Venus as it's heavily aspected in Malik's chart, total of nine times. Venus is also in Libra, which is its domicile, the only planet in its domicile in his chart. Neptune is in Libra uh, as well. So this theme might honestly come up more in part two of our Malik discussion, but more to come on that. To close on his chart, there's a lot of activity around the sign of Gemini. Malik's Mars, Saturn, and Uranus are all located there, giving him a stellium. And as a reminder, a stellium occurs when there are three or more planets in the same sign. Here, it means that Gemini's significations likely play a larger role in Malik's life compared to those of other signs. We'll also touch on the Gemini-Sagittarius polarity in just a moment. But for now, I'll leave it there on the astrology side. Let's get into the movies. Yeah, or at least the themes on the astrology side, I think, right? Well, the chart. That's it for the chart that I think is important now, but more astrological themes to come in a sec. Okay, cool. Okay, if I can start here with a quote from Roger Ebert, he goes, human lives diminish beneath the overarching majesty of the world. This comes from his 2011 article on Badlands, where he effortlessly sums up Malik's MO and pathos across his entire filmography. 
If you don't know the subreddit Human for Scale, the description is photos which feature a human to aid the eye in determining the size of things. Often, these pictures show humans in a really diminutive stature compared to the size of other things. Sometimes human, also, like Shaq. But usually these points of comparison aren't human. Trees are a really popular one, churches, uh, airplane propellers. If you scroll through the most upvoted posts, you'll notice a lot of nature and natural phenomena, often awesome, you know, in the real definition, in size and scope, with a small little human for scale. Hopefully you know what I'm getting at. There's an online community of over 350,000 people who enjoy, are interested in, or at least want to remind themselves of how infinitesimal humans are compared to Mother Nature, our universe, the vast everything that exists. So take all that, broaden it to the most existential degree, and pin the tail on a Terrence Malick film or the Tree of Life's CGI crazy first act that spans from the Big Bang to Brad Pitt's crew cut. Anyway, much is said about uh, Malick's assured vision and confidence with Badlands. First, Malick arguably stands apart from his 70s contemporaries, uh, which is my favorite Paul McCartney song. Nice. Temporary contemporaries. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Temporary contemporaries. Um, he stands apart from them, I think, by not exacting or remixing classical Hollywood styles like Coppola or Spielberg would do with their major influences, Elliot Kazan or John Ford, respectively. Similarly, he doesn't incorporate experimental trends popular at that time in the late 60s, early 70s, like you'll find in Easy Rider or uh, Bonnie and Clyde that honestly date those movies, at least for me, uh, um, IMO. You can tell they were made when they were made. I think Malick does both and neither. Badlands and Days of Heaven are timeless and universal, or at the very least contribute their fair share to American mythmaking as cautionary folktales, lamenting the vicious, unseen loss of innocence for their protagonists, whether it be caused through murder or an indifferent human world. Unlike Coppola and Spielberg, Malick restrains from heavy-handed delivery of the violence depicted, the social and economic class tensions, and even the interpersonal relationships depicted in his first two films. This points back to human lives diminishing beneath the overarching majesty of the world. Like, dumbly put, the natural world, the world beyond human affairs, doesn't care what you do one day, it just keeps spinning into the next. Um, again, which is why I kind of brought up the Reddit thing and the human for scale. Malik's films almost present humans for scale, in scale, compared to the whole world as it exists and, ha and as he conveys it. And there's lots of inserts of pastoral scenes and very, like, empty landscapes uh, definitely in these two films, because, you know, they take place in like plains and farms and badlands, you know, specifically, it's even named that. Um, so really heavy, you know, into the themes there. But we have a really, I think, interesting and different take from the astrology side. So I'm going to actually bounce back to Mishy and um, yeah, let's discuss the themes for this episode. Sure thing. Yeah, I think the one we really picked out and I won't spoil any of your points. I promise, is this relationship. You sure can. You sure can. No, it's all right. But it's this relationship between instinct versus reason. So this provides the perfect opportunity to look at the relationship between Sagittarius and Gemini in Malik's chart. As I briefly mentioned, Malik's sun and Mercury are in Sagittarius and Mars, Saturn, and Uranus are all situated in Gemini. If you're not familiar with the Zodiac Wheel, Gemini and Sagittarius are one of the polarities as they directly oppose each other in the order of signs. This doesn't mean they oppose each other in terms of signification. They actually share the same duplicity and quadruplicity, aka they are both male mutable signs, with the only difference being their elements. So Sagittarius is a fire sign and Gemini is an air sign. Now, polarities set up a natural opposition. These relationships are often considered challenging, 
Although both signs share some similarities, polarities are still really presenting different viewpoints. So the Gemini and Sagittarius polarity has to do with knowledge, very broadly speaking. And I'm going to borrow this quote from the wise words of South Florida astrologer because I think it's put really well. Both Gemini and Sagittarius are searching for knowledge. The difference lies in what kind of knowledge they're interested in, how they search for it, and what they do with it. Gemini is more concerned with tangible facts in the immediate environment. Gemini will know figures and statistics. Sagittarius won't focus on the facts and figures, but they will interpret what the facts and figures mean. The Gemini will list the facts. The Sagittarius will philosophize their impact and search for greater truth behind them. Gemini wants to know what makes the clock tick, and Sagittarius wants to know the relevance of time itself. Even that brief explanation, I think, starts to set up the theme of instinct versus reason. To dig a bit more into this dichotomy, let's look at some of the planets that inhabit each sign. To focus first on Mars and Gemini, Gemini is the sign of immediate knowledge. So when matched with Mars's fiery, reactive, and bullish energy, this placement might signify something or someone that reacts immediately to its surroundings through instinct. Now, instinct doesn't necessarily mean that all the facts aren't being considered, and Gemini doesn't signify right or wrong, but Mars pushes for quick reaction, so Mars in Gemini is about making the quote-unquote right decision with the immediate facts available. Now, Saturn is also in Gemini, so we have both of the malefics sharing space in the same sign. Uh, Mars and Saturn are said to be enemies because Mars is very hot-tempered, reactionary. And Saturn is a slow moving contemplator. So logical thinking is kind of being pulled in two directions here. Having two malefics together um, means that they probably hold a lot of power against the planets they oppose in Sagittarius. And one will inevitably win out at the end. They may be fighting against reason. They may also cause Malik a lot of stress in the areas of his life that relate to Gemini, but relating to that like hot tempered, quick reaction that is uh, instinct you know, Saturn, I see kind of as the energy of this moral framework that's still being kept in mind. So the decisions being made aren't without any contemplation or thought. So maybe that's where Saturn comes in. We'll call this, so the Gemini side of things, the instinct side of the relationship. Any questions or thoughts, concerns, Jeremy, before I keep going? For once, no, because I based <laughs> my whole argument on, you know, these few paragraphs. So I awesome. think we're good here. So let's go over to uh, reason. On the other hand, Mercury is in Sagittarius. And again, Sagittarius signifies like higher learning and philosophical contemplation, the search for truth, if you will. Mercury, the planet of communication, supports Sagittarius significations well in this specific regard, in my opinion. Uh, when we talk about reason, philosophical contemplation leads to absolute reason and Mercury's calmer, more neutral energy helps further strengthen that process. With the sun placed in Sagittarius, the quest for ultimate truth becomes even more essential for the person in question, aka Malik. This is the reason side of the relationship. Now, just to get a little into the nitty gritty, uh, Mercury is in its detriment in Sagittarius, meaning that Sagittarius essentially doesn't really enable Mercury's significations to shine through uh, to their greatest potential. It's important then that the ruler of Sagittarius is well-placed to minimize those negative effects, and it is. Jupiter is making uh, many positive sign-based and degree-based aspects, both trines and sextiles. Jupiter is one of the two benefic planets, like I mentioned before, so it's capable of spreading the most amount of positive energy, luck, and expansion. This is how Mercury can express Sagittarius themes in a more positive way, and that relationship with Jupiter is really how the reason side of this relationship we're talking about can play a bigger part. Looking beyond this relationship and towards Malik's chart as a whole, he really has a strong balance of air signs and fire signs with little to no um, water and earth, as I mentioned before. So Venus, Mars, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are in air signs. 
and the sun, Mercury, Jupiter, and Pluto are in fire signs. I don't <laughs> uh, expect anyone to remember that, but that is where those placements are. I think there is a pop quiz after. So There's a pop quiz. I'm sorry. It's okay. You're allowed to Google uh, his chart, but just make sure it says he's born in uh, Ottawa and not Waco. Yeah, geez. <laughs> Even uh, his north node is in Leo, so a fire sign and south node in Aquarius and an air sign. So again, furthering that relationship that we've been talking about. But interestingly, I want to call this out because in the above relationship, Gemini and Sagittarius, we're calling the air sign the uh, instinct and the fire sign reason, which would be the opposite of what you'd imply when thinking about the significations of the elements at face value. So fire is reactive and air is intelligent and more contemplative and more reasonable. But astrology is all complex. And I think the South Florida astrologers quote really encompasses what we're trying to say with the polarity between Gemini and Sagittarius. So I think the argument still stands and shows how much kind of value you can get out of astrology and how much um, information you can pull from specific placements. So all of that said, I think all of the above, it makes sense why this relationship of instinct versus reason is so prevalent in Malik's work because it's so strongly indicated in his chart. Finn. <laughs> hey. Okay, I'm going to go ramble on forever here Take about my films and everything else like that. Please interject uh, whenever you want. And also remember, study up. There's a pop quiz after, after all this. So, <laughs> all right. Um, so for this episode's thesis, I thought about your emphasis on instinct and reason from the astrology side, as well as the narrative device of the voiceover, specifically in how it personifies and frames the stories through the open, guileless, but also surprisingly world-weary voices of Holly and Linda the adolescent women of both films. The tension between instinct and reason embodied in the lead male and female characters, along with the narrative voiceovers from Holly and Linda, shift these distinctly American folktales into mythic tragedies of love and loss. Central to both films, women are restricted in their individual opportunities, ultimately controlled by the headstrong, bullish whims and desires of aimless, jaded men. Further, the voiceovers in Badlands and Days of Heaven, inhabited by the adolescent females, reason their way through the images on screen from an unknown point of time, complicating and subtly justifying the violent actions of Kit and Bill. There's definitely some gender play at hand in Badlands and Days of Heaven, and it'll be fun in the next episode to compare these to the Thin Red Line, which you haven't seen yet. Very um, excited. So we're we're uh, getting it in right under the wire a little bit here. Um, and that movie's so situated in a male perspective, since it fluidly shifts the inner dialogue of all the soldiers, and it's got this coexistence, one shared consciousness, one shared consciousness thing going for it. Very different from what we see in these two films, uh, where it's so specific to Holly and Linda, since they help frame and again complicate Kit and Bill's crimes. So to quickly take a step back, Badlands is loosely based on the real-life murder spree of uh, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate, Fugate, Fugazi, Fugazi. Fugazi. Uh, in Spaghetti in <laughs> 1958. I'm not going into any details of the crimes or victims on a serious note. That's all available to read online if you're interested, uh, if you're morbid enough. But know that Badlands is far from the only movie to explore and exploit the two figures and their motivations, or more accurately, the lack thereof. The most famous and certainly the most controversial, maybe even more well-known than Badlands, uh, depending on the demographic, you know, skewing younger, is Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers from 1994, starring Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. Wild movie. I Abs an, a I, trip. An absolute trip. I say it. I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a trip, I guess. 
Um, Stone takes a salacious, obviously, graphic approach to the subject matter. It is based on a story from Quentin Tarantino, so it shouldn't be a huge surprise there. Uh, another one is California. California. With a K. Make sure to spell it with a K. That's from 1993. The uh, Anyway, it stars Brad Pitt, so future Ooh. Malik alum. Love it. You know, because he's going to be, he doesn't have a. With the crew cut. Yeah, no crew cut in here. It's, <laughs> he's got the Cobain kind of, you know, falling on oh, the bangs over his eyes. And can you guess, Juliette Lewis is Oof, in this one again. again. So doubling down on the early 90s femme counterpart to one's unhinged psychopathic murder road trip, which if you take the road trip part out of it, I know you haven't watched it, but Strange Days from Catherine Brigelow, uh, spoiler alert, we will be picking up, but we haven't even announced it, but you'll hear it here first if you're hearing it. We're going to take up Bigelow. I really want to take up that movie anyway. So hopefully we get into, hopefully we have one Juliette Lewis from the 90s specifically. And you've told me Strange Days is better than Point Break. So big shoes. And I think Point Break is in like the top 20 of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I It's just an excuse to go on mic about Point Break and Strange Days. But it'd be cool to maybe not even take up those movies and use them as context and, and not the themes. But Strange Days has another... Juliette Lewis and Ray Fiennes, as we were looking at before. Yay. But I, I don't even know who the actor is, but another sort of like just about to be a murderous guy. But, you know, spoiler alert. I guess we should anyway, bring it. We anyway. were talking about Rafe because his brother's in the next Malik movie. Yeah. Joseph. Yeah, exactly. Dude, like Malik, dude, the center he has of the, the universe. Boys. The center of the universe. The crew. Instinct. The gang to be inclusive. Instinct. Anyway, unlike those two films, California. California. With a K and Natural Born. Killers with a K. Um, those two films play out like gonzo thrillers or even like a slasher flick. Malik takes an elegiac approach uh, with his subject matter instead, reeling from the loss of life and opportunity without a scream but a sigh. When violence happens, it's quick and messy and sad. And unlike those other two films, it's not stylized. Violence is more of a necessity. Kit and Bill see no other way to break free than through violence. They shuffle along from job to job, crushed under the weight and again, indifference of both the human and natural world, eager to carve their own path or to have it all at whatever cost. Money, attention, opportunity, centripetal forces that ultimately center around what they truly desire, respect and freedom. There's a telling scene in Days of Heaven as Bill uncharacteristically confides in the nameless farmer, played by Sam Shepard. This is after all the farmhands have left and the film's central surrogate family, Bill and Abby, who are lovers but claim to be brother-sister to try to lay low after Bill kills or maims his boss at the mill during the film start. Uh, and, there's, and then there's Bill's younger actual sister, Linda. The three of them have schemed their way into living on the farm to provide help and company for the lonely farmer that owns the farm, obviously. Once Bill notices the farmer's obvious attachment towards Abby, Bill convinces Abby to play another part the part of the farmer's lover. So during the start of their stay, Bill vocalizes his frustrations with his life and the opportunities never provided to him. One day you wake up, you find you're not the smartest guy in the world, never going to come up with a big score. When I was growing up, I really thought I would. I thought I really would. I wouldn't have gotten the part, Malik. I'm sorry. No Richard Gere. No Richard Gere. <laughs> no, we, we can't be. On a similar note, bucket of worms. Not gonna get into. It. I'd never want to be. And guess what movie Richard Gere's in? I don't know. <laughs> Chicago, isn't he? Continue. I'll look it up. Past and future lover of ours, Bob Fosse, on the uh, podcast. I think it's worth. I'll edit this part out while you're looking it up, even though I won't. 
think she looked up the wrong Chicago. I'm looking getting? up the city. Looking at the and city. And then the Blackhawks. What'd you say? I'm just kidding. The, the, is it I'm a hockey kidding. team? Yeah, it's a hockey team. Okay, well then. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, Richard Gere. Right? Bob Fosse. Dude, all connected. Hollywood is one big cesspool. Yeah, John C. Riley. if we go back to <laughs> Magnolia days. <laughs> Anyway. John C. Riley's in Chicago? Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. I got to watch that movie. On a similar note, in Badlands, Kit is unceremoniously fired from his job, picking up garbage, and immediately goes to the unemployment office. His prospects are slim. When asked why he left his previous job, not the one he was just fired from, but a city job, again, working in garbage, he responds that he just felt like it. The government worker then asks, what kind of work do you think you'd be qualified for? Kit replies, I can't think of anything at the moment. He eventually receives a job at a feedlot herding cattle on a farm. When originally presented with this job, he hoped there'd at least be a breeze. A similar sentiment is echoed in the scene of Kit telling Holly about his potential new gig. At least nobody can get on me about wearing these boots anymore, meaning his cowboy boots. Both Kit and Bill feel chewed up, worn down, bottomed out, and possess little reason to continue mindlessly working from job to job with little hope of escaping the grind. This is about- Man, do I feel that. (laughs) Oh boy. Bucket of worms, Richard Gere. This is about as much motive that Malik will give us uh, for why these men lash out against the world. At least in my more casual reading of the films, it's tough to squeeze all meaning out of a single film without months of studying it. You know, we watch these a couple times. We're here. You know, we'd love to pick stuff up for promo material afterwards. But anyways, that's as much as I squeezed out of it. Uh, So when they do lash out against the world in a violent way, Uh, It inevitably leads to violent murders and desperate failed escapes from authority, the law. However, surprisingly, when given the opportunity to kill a rich man in his own mansion, uh, someone who seemingly has everything that Kit desires or, you know, Bill desires more specifically, uh, different movie, but, you know, Kit spares him and for no real reason. Holly comments on this, but maybe we'll get to it later and comments on it through the voiceover. Um, It's through these examples, the slow burn and meaninglessness of manual labor, few opportunities to break free from poverty or anonymity, the ceaseless struggle of life and the world's insouciant response to it, which, you know, tell me about it, uh, that we can begin to understand Kit and Bill's sudden bursts of violence. Bill confides in the farmer about how he'll never find the big score. But the farmer is as close as he'll ever get to a score if he plays his cards right, which, spoilers, this isn't Ocean's Eleven. He loses everything when he gambles with Abby. So, Richard Gere. But that's the thing. Bill sacrifices everything he has for that big score. This is his opportunity. And as much as he can try to play chess and set up his pieces and coldly calculate his way toward freedom... Uh, I forgot to say before, but a huge part of this plan is that he overhears a doctor telling the farmer he maybe has a year to live due to some mysterious illness, which is the thing they'd hopefully inherit the farm and fortune if Abby marries the farmer and the farmer passes away. Yeah, he can do everything to plan this out, but when forced into a corner, he must rely solely on instinct and act on it alone, right? Killing the farmer when he sees no other choice and making a run for it with his family. Spoiler alert. And then there's Kit. Well... He kills Holly's father, burns the house down, and makes a run for it with her, lovers on the lamb style. In comparison to Bill, Kit seems to have it okay. Cowboy boots, you know, a garbage job, seemingly a roof over his head, unlike Bill. So let's dig in a little bit further. When we're introduced to Kit, Sheen plays him as moving from moment to moment without really thinking about what he's saying or doing, offering a dollar to his coworker to eat a dead border collie. Oh, I hated that. Which is Ooh. such a weird, there's a lot, oh, look. To which Cato, his co-worker, is like, nope, and also not a colleague. So we just see him keep failing at these 
really bizarre interactions. Eat this dog. Give me a cigarette. Buy these shoes. Unsuccessfully balancing, or he's trying to sell like a pair of shoes he found in the garbage to the driver. Anyway, unsuccess, unsuccessfully balancing a broom on his hand and dumpster diving to no avail. He's aimless and bored and insidiously childish. Something we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast is a film's score or soundtrack and the creative ways in which it guides us towards uh, discovering themes and character traits. So the most Malik gives us on the surface in Badlands is with the soundtrack, as he extensively uses Gassenhauer by German composer Karl Orff. To briefly explain, in the 1920s, Orff and Gunild Kietmann, an educator himself, developed a very inclusive, welcoming, what's meant to be natural way of learning music that's still actually widely used today. The Orff Schulwerk, which literally means schoolwork or schooling, is a way of teaching music through practical instruction. It implies all concepts are learned by doing. So get this, on the website for the American Orff Schulwerk Association, part of the definition of the teaching model reads, children begin with what they do instinctively, play, imitation, experimentation, and personal expression. This is a talking head song all of a sudden. Uh, occur naturally as students become confident, lifelong musicians and creative problem solvers. So if we extrapolate this for Kit, so much of the movie is Kit and Holly imitating adult behavior and playing house. Kit pretends to be James Dean and Holly admires and compliments him on it. They play house in the woods by hunting and gathering, living in their treehouse. They build the treehouse, right? Yeah, it was kind of like mud style. It was fun. I, met, I, I, I was writing this out. I was like, do they do it? And I never... Friggin' it's looked like, whether or not they actually built a treehouse, which I think they do. It's like a little, like, bundle for sure. Whatever. Uh, but uh, so much a symbol of childhood, of course, right? Um, the instinctual experimentation comes into play uh, when Kit learns his way to being a mass murderer. Helps explain some of his motive, as in there is none. He kills the bounty hunters that come after him in his treehouse and improvises an explanation for it. Holly, through voiceover, refers to Kit explaining that if they were cops doing their job, the bounty hunters he kills, um, it would be different and he wouldn't have done it. And then previously mentioned, he spares that rich guy. Kit uses it as an opportunity to make some grand empty moral play about listening to your parents and superiors. Uh, they got a line on things, you know, listen to them with a cigarette in his mouth. Uh, here is some personal expression blossoming in Kit as he's molding some identity based on new knowledge and confidence of Holly and himself as these criminal celebrities. I think he's reading it in the paper at the mansion. And we should also mention that that is Terrence Malick's wonderful cameo and some of the only shots available <laughs> of him online when he shows up at the door. Hey, whatever. Yeah. You know, he got into a fist fight with a guy on the, on the set of yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did hear that. Legend. I also heard that the guy who was supposed to play that role, the guy who knocked on the door, just didn't show up. And yes. Terrence was like, all right. And he said, I'm just going to do this so that we get your things. And Sheen's like, and, and in a um, oral biography, oral history of... Um, uh, GQ's oral history of Badlands, uh, like a 40 year later kind of thing. Um, Sheen was like, he told Malik, I'm not going to do it with anyone else. You're in the movie. Cause he knew Malik was never going to step foot in other, in any other situation. He was never, never going to step foot in front of the camera. Yeah. And so he's like, this is it. And he's like, I think it's great. It's and I think it's good treasure. too. I think I it's had great. No, I had no idea except this time around because I was like, Oh, Malik, I kind of, as a meme, Malik's like my display picture on like PlayStation. Because and it's other like places. the only picture of him in that little uh, Jurassic Park cat. Interesting use of the word little. Huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> huge. It's a huge like, hat. Explorer hat. <laughs> Safari style. <laughs> yeah. Legend. Um, okay. So 
I know maybe I'm stretching here with the whole score, but just imagine the American roads as Kit's classroom. And instead of music, it's murder. You know, he's learning by doing. The qualities of imitation, experimentation, and personal expression all refer back to instinct, which is the soundtrack's modus operandi. The use of Gassenhauer in Badlands helps resolve some of the ambiguity present in the film, as we're left to wonder what the hell Kit is doing most of the time, usually just acting on juvenile instinct. So there's the instinct part of it, all tied to the male protagonists of Badlands and Days of Heaven. Through instinct, they act and rely on violence to solve their insecurities in lieu of the tough breaks they've suffered through all of their lives. These violent whims, which naturally resolve in murder, then limit the opportunities for both themselves and the women most important to them. Speaking of Holly and Linda, let's jump to the other half of the thematic astrological astrological, astrological equation. Reason. Sagittarius. Whoop whoop. The philosopher. The thinker. The big if hat. You will. The, you gotta, the man with the you gotta big keep hat. a big he look, you know what you wanna know why he's got such a small hat, as you said? Why? Because he's got a big brain. Okay. You need big to big brain man. All right. For sure. Malik, big brain man. That's you got, that you got Merc a, and uh inside baby. You don't just have a tight baseball cap, it's gonna limit his thinking. You're not wrong. That's gonna be an instinct hat. He needs a reason hat. I know. I think he's probably also a person <laughs> like you. I know when you're thinking of like ideas for this podcast specifically or like other ideas in general, okay. you hate like reading what other people say because you want everything to like organically come from you and, and your experiences. And I'm sure Malik's the same where and he's like, just like, here. just like, I like don't want to be part. Of- <laughs> well, no, actually, interestingly, and, um, and I'm going to refer to it, but the, the voiceover part, not as a spoiler, but getting into the days of heaven thing, uh, they use a true foe movie and I can't think of it right now, but we're going to actually, this is a new thing, which we've would have probably already talked about in the intro. We're going to leave little resources uh, for some home reading and home watching, if you want, besides mm-hmm. the films, uh, to actually like sort of a really casual works cited because otherwise, you know, we're plagiarizing plagiarizing ideas. But they use, they kept referring to some true uh, Truffaut movie and its use of the voiceover uh, and they and they were inspired by that from Days of Heaven. So, mm. you know, maybe, maybe not. But yes, actually, a lot of this voiceover stuff is a bit limited. We're nearing the end of the big discussion about the films because my take on it was that instinct, obviously, which is what the thesis says, instinct was going to be all the violent actions of the men. Uh, and because of the voiceovers, which implicitly have a trait of hindsight, that's what it is. It's the framing device within the invasion of the body snatchers, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure, and so many other movies. I don't know why that's the first one I thought of. But um, yeah, it's supposed, it's supposed to be reasoning and, and, and contextualizing the film. And through that, you know, reason as a part of it, and then it's tied to both female uh, characters in, in, the, in the films. So um, unfortunately, slash very fortunately, so many scholarly articles already exist and, and exist in general that talk to that. So we're going to dive in really quickly. Um, yeah, and then we're going to jump back out. <laughs> the water's getting cold. You got to jump out. <laughs> so the voiceovers in Badlands and Days of Heaven inhabited by the adolescent females reason their way through the images on screen from an unknown point of time, complicating and subtly justifying the violent actions of Kit and Bill. This is not a replay. This is me saying what I already said seven minutes ago uh, verbatim. Holly and Linda occupy this in-between omniscience in the films' uh, diegesis, knowing what's bound to happen, but still living through it and commenting on it as the audience's surrogate. And what does reason need? Brain power, 
Big brain power, big safari hats. Big brain. Introspection, critical thinking, hindsight. All of these narrations hint at things left unsaid and lives left undone by men committing violent actions as they work and lived uh, as they work and live through and by instinct. We didn't have time for it on this episode, but it's fitting that one of the major philosophical works Malik's translated is Heidegger's The Essence of Reasons. Maybe they just share a namesake, uh, but we know when digging into the astrology and filmy side of our stars, we find lots of parallels. So sticking a pin in that for now and hope to come back to it next episode. In one of his few very rare interviews, Malik describes Kit in contrast to Holly. Kit, on the other hand, is a closed book, not a rare trait in people who have tasted more than their share of bitterness in life. The movies have kept up a myth that suffering makes you deep. It inclines you to say deep things. It builds character and is generally healthful. It teaches you lessons you never forget. People who've suffered go around in movies with long, thoughtful faces as though everything had caved in just yesterday. It's not that way in real life, though, not always. Suffering can make you shallow and just the opposite of vulnerable, dense. It's had this kind of effect on Kit. On a similar note, Sheila O'Malley, writing for the Criterion Collections online blog, Current, argues, Kit has a sense of self-importance but no self-awareness. Bringing this back to our motifs, reason, and voiceover, I think the presence of the narration specifically in Badlands throws light on Kit's lack of inner dialogue, his almost complete absence of thought. We know so much about Holly by the film's end, and even though Kit is the character propelling the narrative along, this is ultimately Holly's story told in the first person. What we learn about Kit is only through acting and doing, not thinking. The gaps are filled in by Holly's introspection. More significantly, we know stuff about Holly that Kit doesn't. After Kit spins a bottle to decide which direction to head next, only to immediately give up on the idea, again, operating on pure chaotic instinct, Holly's narration goes, I'd stopped even paying attention to him. Instead, I sat in the car and read a map and spelled out entire sentences with my tongue on the roof of my mouth where nobody could read them. Those sentences could basically, I'm no sissy SpaceX, so I'm sorry. Uh, those sentences could basically stand in for the narration itself as she creates her own story, her own world apart from Kit, notably at a sticking point where she feels herself pulling away from Kit. The physical act of spelling out sentences without Kit's awareness doubles for the recitation of the narration itself. And I don't think this is going too far since Malik is suggesting how Badlands and the character of Kit negotiates or renegotiates historical depictions of suffering on film. In Days of Heaven, Linda's narration works on so many different levels here. For example, at times, she elucidates on the inner thoughts of Bill and the farmer, specifically their affection for Abby. Even though there's no indication of those conversations having happened with Linda, especially when Linda describes the farmer's desires or doubts, how does she have access to this information? Holly describes Kit for us through what he says aloud and what he does, but never what he thinks to himself. That's kind of the part, that's you know the point of it. To keep things brief at the film's climax, Linda's narration nakedly rationalizes Bill killing the farmer. Nobody's perfect. There was never a perfect person. You just got half devil and half angel in you. In what would otherwise be the last straw on this farmer's plot of land for the audience, Linda surmises an inert theological balance, or, you know, astrological balance, is to blame, uh, or at least provides a reason for one of the greatest sins in the Bible, right? Anyway, there's so much to unpack with the narration, and I've read so many great articles commenting on its use that to avoid any plagiarism, I just recommend going to the show notes, reviewing the nugs we've left, as I've said, in the description if you want more home reading. For something of my own take on Days of Heaven, I've noted that Malik's filmmaking during production and post-production exemplifies instinct through process and experimenting with form, with the form of narration and editing. Creative breakthroughs realized from improvisational techniques and simply being open to change and renewal. 
Malick's longtime editor, Billy Weber, discusses that while the voiceover was planned for Badlands, the narration was naturally discovered during the two-year edit. Two-year edit, <laughs> I should say. You know, the two, so long uh, for Days of Heaven. First, Malick had Linda react to the scenes from the edit, recording her natural, completely improvised thoughts on what she was seeing and slowly incorporating their own suggestions for her. Weaving the narration together, the images begin to take on new meaning and the final edit started to take form. Arguably, Linda's diegetic narration is so multi-layered because it combines instinct and reason. Joan McGettigan in Journal of Film and Video writes, Linda is more an observer of than a participant in events. She rationalizes the actions of other characters, passes judgments, and formulates her own philosophies of life. The complex and contradictory nature of her voiceover requires us constantly to reevaluate what we see and hear, in short, to become conscious of the narrating agency's presentation of the diegetic world and perhaps to become suspicious of it. Beginning with those key facets of the ORF show work, imitation, experimentation, and personal expression, Malik Weber and actor Linda Manns worked together to forge new creative bonds and ideas that weren't otherwise filmed originally or, you know, instinctually. Unlike here, where I kind of ran out of steam, and that's pretty much the end of the script that we have it here. So again, Instinct and reason play in really interesting ways with Days of Heaven and Linda's narration. They discovered it through instinct, and then the text and subtext incorporated reason into it, as far as I can tell. Uh, and that's not something that we, that I read in a lot of my or my research. But for the most part, for sure, there is a lot of um, shifting tenses in terms of past, present, and future. There is a point in the beginning where Linda talks about um, someone they meet on their travels, or at least maybe, you know, it's one of the farmhands talking about how we'll all be engulfed in flames, which is a common or well-known biblical tale of revelations. And that happens. There's locusts, there's farms, uh, there's farms, there's locusts, there's a fire on the farm. And it basically is from this sort of insidious evil that exists in all of us and around us and all this kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't think I ever said anything, but... Oddly enough, Days of Heaven reminded me of It by Stephen King because Pennywise mm -hmm. is this ancient interstellar figure that comes down through a spaceship okay, um, and then just turns into a clown, but obviously takes on a bunch of different forms. As right. I said, it becomes very eldritch and Lovecraftian. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, you know, Pennywise is this eldritch horror figure where it is actually like just your worst nightmares right. come true, right? And uh, also takes the shape of like all the evil in dairy and so it's funny to think of like the same themes being explored except ten thousand fold and then with a bunch of other interesting things and it took malik 97 minutes and it took dumbass stephen king 1100 no! pages to not even get his point across <laughs> oh. that well it's just funny the succinctness of it and uh, again really just in terms of a point of comparison and the same themes being touched upon mm -hmm. malik g and stephen king the verdict's still out but i don't know Whatever. That's um, one uh, film viewer's opinion. <laughs> yours too. I think you hated. Yeah, we were watching it the other uh, the other week. Hey, so. but some people love it. He's a very celebrated man. But very excited to talk about Malik in our next episode. Obviously, yeah. we're jumping a good couple decades. Correct so me if he. I'm wrong. So does, so does he. He falls off the map as sort of a, a bridge to mm -hmm. all of this. But he takes um, 19 years between the two releases of his films. And it was something of a myth 
he became something of a myth uh, in Hollywood mm-hmm. after the fact with the very controversial, stressful production of Badlands. And then Days of Heaven kind of is a not a box office bomb, but it kind of lands. There's not as much like fanfare or like a claim. There is, but Badlands was like this real sort of like genius auteur thing. And Days of Heaven is a much more muted film. It's a much more difficult film in a lot of ways. We don't Agreed. like it as much as Badlands, but I think with time we'll we'll discover it. Mm-hmm. This writing this out helped a lot. Um, and then we get to the Thin Red Line, which next to the Tree of Life in terms of name or or um, or legacy, I think his I think Thin Red Line is definitely his biggest film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's talked about outside of even if you don't know about Badlands or anything. Mm-hmm. It's a I think there's a lot of similarities, but it's also totally different filmmaking. Oh, that's um, what I like. I'm you know. obviously a lot more familiar with Malik's recent work. You know, I hadn't seen Badlands or Days of Heaven until us watching it for the podcast. Yeah. And yeah, I think the Thin Red Line, uh, Tree of Life, is what defines Malik in the present. Absolutely. Um, it's what a lot of people associate because he has such a distinct style now. And I don't think he really had that in the same way with um, Badlands and Days of Heaven. So yeah, it'll be really fun to talk about both. And I think um, the things we'll bring up will vary a lot from what we've talked about here i think his visual style oh he's mastered well no but i mean like i think his visual style from the thin red line and on is what people associate with malik and i think people would probably associate more of the screenwriting and how good of a writer he is because it's these movies are much more dialogue heavy and if Mm -hmm. they're not they're narration heavy and the thin red line is narration heavy except you don't know who's talking at a given time and the tree of life is the same where it kind of is like it's just very floaty cinema. I know. I've and Badlands it, yeah. and Days of Heaven are grounded. They are. You know, and so and those are and that's why we wanted to split up because obviously just based on the sort of dynamic of his career, if I can mm-hmm. use just randomly that word, that's the wrong word to use. Young to old Terrence Malick, mm-hmm. what he gains, what he loses, mm-hmm. um, and how his output has, you know, increased Anyways, by three times. Or we'll something. uh we'll save that for the next episode. But anyway, that's it for us. Uh, for on this episode, Malik to the stars, let's say, um, the goat. we really hope you had enjoyed it. You enjoyed it again. We'll have prefaces in the intro, but thanks for putting up with different formats and scripting and new, we got mics, new mics. And we're really trying to figure this out. Uh, we're not really sure how it sounds right now and everything. We'll, uh, we'll put it together and all the same good filmy content is out there. And again, go to the show notes, uh, look at the episode nugs and, um, do some of uh, really just fun videos behind the scenes, everything like that about these two films uh, and it really helps sort of uh, illuminate what we were talking about in this episode. So with that, we love you. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.